by saying, and you know what I'm talking about, this may be the last time. We hope this will be the last time that we ever meet together as a church. Do you guys know what I'm talking about when he says that? Right? Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think in your head like, do I hope that? Do I want that? Is that my desire this week? That, that Jesus is going to come back this week and totally change history forever? It's an interesting thought. Because I'm not sure on any given week if I could honestly say that. Sometimes I have a lot going on in my life right now that I'm excited about. And I kind of don't live in, in expectation and eagerness of Christ's return. But we should. We should. Um, 2 Thessalonians uh, is written to us to build in us and equip in us uh, eager, faithful expectation of Christ's return, where it is a joy for us to think about. Now, the Thessalonians had a lot of trouble in their life. They had a lot of uh, strong trials going on in their life. If you've been reading through Second Thessalonians, you know that they were encountering a lot of difficult circumstances. And to be honest, that's probably why they were so eager and, and, and hopeful in Christ's coming, right? Because this world was reviling them because they loved Christ. And when, when the world hates you because you love Christ, it, it causes you to love Christ more, right? And that's one way, I suppose, you could become persecuted. Uh, but I think this letter was actually written to help us grow in our longing for Christ's return. Grow in our longing. It was, it was written to, to help them be faithful in their expectation. The Thessalonians were not perfect in their expectation, but they had, they had great strides in that area. And, and we want to grow in our faithfulness and expectation. So I want to give you three applications from the letter, uh, the second letter to the Thessalonians for a faithful expectation in Christ's coming. So if you're taking notes, it's just three, uh, three applications for how to have a faithful expectation in Christ's coming. Uh, number one, we can move to the next slide. Ooh, look at that. Well, that was exciting. I'll do that. Go back, Tate. Go back. So exciting. Oh, man. Go forward. Okay. There we go. All right. Okay. Okay, stop now. I'm getting dizzy. Okay, all right. Number one, number one, uh, a faithful expectation prays it forward. Prays it forward. What are we talking about? Well, let's just kind of kind of unpack this a little bit. You notice there, uh, verse three of chapter one, Paul says, "We ought always to give thanks to you, uh, uh, to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you." are enduring. You see there, right? The church is a thriving church. Look at that. They are, they have a faith that is growing abundantly. Any of you have orange trees in your backyard? They grow abundantly. You try to find friends to give away all of your abundance because you've got too many oranges in your backyard. Look, their, their faith is multiplying and growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is what? Increasing. They are increasing in their love for one another. They are doing very well. They are thriving spiritually. 
And they're also a suffering church. You see there in verse 4, look at all the things that they're going through. They have steadfastness and faith in all their persecutions and in the afflictions uh, that they are enduring. All, look at that word, all their persecutions. It's not just one persecution, it's many. And many afflictions are coming their way. And here, here kind of is a little lesson that we always should think about when we look at the Thessalonian church. Satan has no interest... No interest in bothering the kind of Christianity that is not uh, thriving. He'll let you just stay as you are if you are um, ineffective in your Christian life. That's totally fine with him. But if you become effective, if you start growing abundantly, and if your faith is growing abundantly, then he's going to send trouble your way, because that's what Satan doesn't want. He does not want effective churches. Now, how does Paul respond to this this faithful church that's growing, uh, but that is encountering great difficulty and suffering? Uh, Look at what he says in verse 5 after talking about these afflictions. This, um, talking about their afflictions and persecution, is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Now, just real quick there, that's a passive verb, and you don't really need to remember that it's a passive verb, but all you need to know is, is, is realize that it's, it's not God, it's not meaning that God is making you worthy. It is, Paul's actually saying, this is evidence that God has declared you worthy. He has reckoned you. He has counted you worthy of his kingdom. Paul is looking at their sufferings and their afflictions, and he's saying, this is evidence that God has chosen in you. In Paul's mind, he, he, he never said, he never said that God is somehow making you deserving of his kingdom. That's never how Paul thought about suffering. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of building up, building up eternal desserts for myself by all the things that I'm afflicted afflicted with. It's not like penance where you um, do enough good things to show that you're truly of the faith. It's not like purgatory. This is not what's going on here where, you know, you just go through afflictions for a while until you finally deserve something good to happen in your life. That's not, that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is saying, Paul is saying that these persecutions, these sufferings in your life are a sign that God has picked you. That God has chosen you. God calls the unworthy. God calls the sinful. God calls the fallen. Paul, of all people, knew that, right? Who was Paul when God called him and God saved him? He was persecuting the very body of Christ on earth, right? God does not call those people who have made themselves worthy through suffering or anything like that or good works. God calls the unworthy. But, but here we see this suffering that they're encountering in their life is evidence that God has called them. God has called them to share in all that can be found in Christ. That, that's, that's what's going on here. They are called to share, right? All of it, the persecution, the reviling, the shame, all of it is undeserved grace. You have been called to share in all that is in Christ, all of the riches and the rewards, but also the suffering. All of it is undeserved grace in your life. That's how Paul thought about suffering. That's kind of how he's thinking here. 
they're called to suffer, but also they are called to also look forward to Christ's coming. Look at what Paul says there in verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And look what happens to them. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Just a side note right there. Notice how uh, hell is described. Eternal judgment is described. He describes it as eternal destruction. Uh, This is not annihilationism where you just uh, get vaporized by God and cease to exist. But notice, it is a destruction that lasts forever. That's pretty terrifying, right? It's a destruction that lasts forever. That is, that is the reward of those who do not obey and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. An eternal undoing, an eternal ruin, you could say. But notice also how Paul describes it. It's not just that it's eternally destruction, it is also eternal separation. Do you know that Jesus and Paul and Peter actually describe hell a lot more as, as, as an absence, an, a separation from God than they do that it's like burning fire? It's very instructive to you, right? Hell is not some just glorious place where you get to hang out with a bunch of unbelievers. Hell is a place... That is eternal separation from everyone, right? There, there's, I was reading a commentary this last week, and he was talking about, do you realize there's no relationships that will be found in hell? There, there's no other, no other fellowship that will be found in hell. There's no cell phones in hell. You will not have any access to the outside world. You'll be completely alone and experiencing eternal destruction forever. This is a terrifying place. But who goes here? Who are the ones that receive this judgment? Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's a difference, right? And this is a mark of these Thessalonians of the fact that God has called them, chosen them, because they have been saved out of this. Now... Now, this is very confusing. You're probably all like wandering around in your head like, where in the world is David going and how in the world does this have to do with praying? I don't even know what your point means, Pastor David. And you are talking on and on about hell and separation, all these kinds of things. Well, look at, look at what Paul does. In light of Christ's imminent return and in light of all of these things that they are suffering, notice, notice how he prays. How should you pray How should you pray when you are suffering for being called a Christian? When you are suffering because because you are in Christ. You should pray it forward. What do I mean by that? You should pray pray towards the end. You should pray for Christ's coming and you should pray in preparation for Christ's 
coming. Um, and I, I love this prayer that Paul has there in verse 11 and verse 12. This might be my favorite prayer in the Bible. And I was really going to skip over it and skim it. And, but as I was reading it over and over, I was like, I just can't skim it. I can't skip it. Just look at how he prays for them. This is how you should pray in suffering. This is how you can kind of make the most out of any situation. Notice how he prays. Verse 11, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice there's the first thing that he does. Move to another slide here. Uh, the first prayer that he prays is, number one, make me worthy of your calling. Make me worthy of your calling. Another one. Sorry. It's a little confusing, Tate. Uh, make me worthy of your calling. You see this in verse 11 there. And this, of course, is reflective of Ephesians 4.1, where Paul says, uh, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is a good pray- prayer to pray. Now, I'm, I'm sure some of you are maybe confused at this point. You said, hey, I, I thought... Uh, God didn't use sufferings to make us worthy. That's what you just spent all of that time explaining that earlier. Now, what's going on here? Well, notice what he says there. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy, worthy of his calling. Now, once again, I said this before, God calls those who are unworthy. But notice what he does. He then makes worthy those who are already worthy. Kind of confusing language. God makes worthy those who have been declared worthy. God sends sanctification into the life of those who have been justified, declared righteous before God. God makes you what you already are. And, and notice, this is, this is not something that you're doing on your own. This is not something, well, now that I'm saved, I, I better start doing a lot of good things. I better start reading my Bible and things like this. This is something that you do in, in complete dependence on God. Notice, this is a prayer. That God would do this in your life. That's not just a a trite little statement that you repeat. and That's not just a prayer that you unthinkingly pray. This This is truly what needs to happen. And in order for sanctification to happen in your life, you need God to be working in you. To make you worthy of the worthiness that he has already declared you to have. You need to pray this forward. You need to pray towards this end. God, make me worthy. God, you need to say this. God, I don't deserve any of the blessings in your life. I don't deserve this suffering for Christ's namesake, and I don't deserve the sanctification that you want to produce in me through these things. But can you please make me worthy through these things? Based, of course, in the grace that I've received in Christ. I am undeserving of these things, but I ask that you would make me worthy of the worthiness that I already have in Christ. That's an amazing prayer. To this end, you pray it forward. A second prayer you should pray, and this is really crazy, you should pray this. Fulfill my desires. Oh boy. Now we're going Joel Olstein, and we're talking prosperity gospel and all these kinds of things. Um, and you probably miss, are mishearing me. I'm not saying you should pray to God, Lord, fulfill your desires. God's desires for me. No, no. Paul is saying in verse 11, right? He's saying that God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good, every work of faith by his power. Fulfill, that means to bring it about, to bring it to completion, to full expression. Every resolve of good. This is a resolve in you, right? 
every work of faith. This is a work that you do. You're asking God to, to bring about your desires, to fulfill them. And, and notice that, by His power, by your power, bring about my desires. Extraordinary prayer. And shocker, uh, the, the shocker of shockers is God's power that Paul is asking for. God, Paul is asking for God's power to fulfill their desires, their work of faith, um, and their efforts for good. So what's going on here? Well, it's not the prosperity gospel. It's not, hey, I've got a desire for a new car, a new house, all these things in my life to pad my life. It's not that at all. What's, what's going on? I would say these are desires for what? For good. These are desires prompted by what? By faith. These are new man desires. These are not just selfish aspirations, selfish ambitions. These are desires that are prompted by your faith in who God is and, and what God promises to you. These, these are desires that are fueled by the knowledge of who God wants you to be. These, these are desires that are based in a new person working inside of you, alive inside of you. New desires, regenerated resolutions, and proper priorities. He gives you internal desires, resolve for good, and he gives you external action, right? Work of faith. This is a new man kind of thing. Ephesians 2, 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in. God has called you to works, not to gain your salvation, to make yourself more deserving. No, but but because you have been called, because you are already worthy, therefore he calls you to good works. And, And you should pray, Lord, make me new in my desires and fulfill my new man desires for your glory. How can you do this? Well, I, I kind of talked about this at Winter Retreat for some of you that were here a couple years ago. If you can't remember, that's fine. I always have to look these up and remind myself of them, so I assume you do too. Uh, here's how you do it. You First off, you write down all of the priorities and the goals that you have in your life. Just write them down. Be as brutally honest with yourself as you can. These are my priorities. And then you need to pray over them. Number, number two, you need to pray over them and you need to ask God, are these new man desires or are these uh, remnants of the old man desires? Are, are these proper priorities or are these personal priorities? Are these, are these things that you are wanting? Are these new desires or are these old desires? And then second, ask God to help you. Form right priorities, right desires, and then act on what you have asked for in God. Right? It's interesting. Prayer is actually the means God uses to form in us new man desires. It is through prayer, right? It is through confronting your selfishness in prayer. It is through asking for God's help in prayer you put on new desires. Lord, can you use me in some way this next year to bring about your kingdom? Can you use me in the life of someone around me to spread the good news of the gospel? Can you bring someone my way to do that? Fulfill my desires, my new man desires. Number three, use my life. This is the next prayer. Use my life for your glory. In a, in a way, this whole prayer is just simply this. Use my small little life 
for your big purposes, right? Use my small little life and my small little desires for your big purposes in this world. God purposes in all things to bring about what? His glory, Christ's glory. We see this in verse 12. What's the result of these new man desires being fulfilled? So that in, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Glorified in you. When is that going to be? Ultimately, it's going to be in verse 10 when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and be marveled at among those who have believed. But then notice also, not just glorified in you, but you are also glorified in him. And we see here, as as Christ's likeness becomes your likeness, Christ gets more glory from your life. Lord, can you renew and change and refine my desires to be more like your desires so that I can be glorified in you as I will be ultimately when you come. That's the first um, application, right? Pray it forward. Pray towards this end. Pray for Christ's coming. Lord, I don't want to just change everything then. I want to start the sanctification process in my life now. Pray towards that end. Uh, the, second, the second prayer. Oh man, so crazy. Uh, pray it forward. And then second, a faithful expectation. Uh, sorry, I changed this last minute. Whoops. The grammar's all wrong. But fuel, here's just d- direct application. Fuel faith with truth. Fuel faith with truth. You want to have a faithful expectation. Fuel your faith with truth right now. The Thessalonians had faith, right? But they needed to grow in their faith. They needed to grow in their faith. You see in chapter 2, verse 1, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter, seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Shaken, the word there, uh, can refer to a boat that's untied from the dock and it starts drifting off into the ocean. It is unsteady. It has no stability in, in the storms and the rain. And what's going on here? The Thessalonians are starting to feel, starting to feel like endurance is pointless in their life. Well, why are they feeling it? Because they're receiving some sort of popular teaching that seems to be from Paul, or perhaps is correcting Paul. But it sounds like it's 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 suggesting that this is Paul speaking. They're receiving this this teaching that somehow they have missed the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is, of course, referring to lots of different things. Most definitely the day that the Lord comes. We already talked about that. But they're, they're feeling like they have missed something. That they are presently now experiencing wrath or judgment in their life. Or they have somehow missed the rapture. Missed the rapture in their life. It's a, it's a, very, it's a very scary time. They are shaken. They are shaken. Now... I didn't know where to put this, but like whenever I come to um, uh, an eschatology, a study of the last times kind of things, I always have to kind of reconvince myself of things that I believe in. So I have to study all over. I have to study all sorts of things because when you're studying end times things, you're studying a lot of different verses, a lot of different passages all at once. 
And this brought to mind, why do I believe, just kind of just for your, for your interest, why do I believe in the rapture? Why do I believe that the rapture is biblical, that the Lord will come and take people to be with him? Because it's, it seems here like we're missing the rapture a little bit, although we just talked about it in, in 1 Thessalonians 4. So just really quick, let me just give you a quick overview, thousand points on why I believe the rapture really quick. Uh, next slide, Tate. All right, here we go. Why I believe the rapture. Bam. All right, next slide. It's in the Bible. Uh, there you go. First uh, Thessalonians 4.17 actually talks about it. Now, it is, as you know, in the Latin version of the Bible, rep. Rap, rapture is a Latin word, but it sounds a lot better to say rapture than to say harpazod. Uh, that doesn't sound exciting at all, harpazod. We've been harpazod in the air, so we don't want that. So it's in the Bible. It's actually there. Next point. It's, it's not just in one place either. I think you can find evidence of it in John 14, 1 through 4, in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, I think you can see it in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, and then, of course, 1 John 3, 2. It's not just in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, next um, it would make sense that it is new, that we do not see evidence of it in the Old Testament, right? It, the church is a mystery in and of itself, and the church's removal would also be uh, a sensible mystery. Next slide. Um, it is not spoken of in prominent second coming passages. So when we see Jesus coming, like we see in chapter 1 of Second Thessalonians, we, we, we notice it is missing. And then, of course, when you look in Matthew 24, you don't see it there. When you look in Revelation 19, you don't see it there. So there's, there's something that's happening. It seems as though Christ's second coming has two aspects of it. First, to gather his people to him and then to come and administer justice. That makes sense. Next slide. Um, it explains the absence of great tribulation warnings. You can read the epistles and you will quickly come to the conclusion that the New Testament writers aren't warning the Christians to prepare for the great tribulation. That's very interesting considering it, it, it's great. You, you'd think there would be a little bit of, uh, of preparation warning, but no, we don't receive anything in all 5,000 verses. So, uh, next slide. It explains why the Thessalonians were grieved. This is very interesting to me. In 1 Thessalonians 4, the Thessalonians are grieved that some of their members are dead. Why? Because they miss out on the great tribulation? No, because they're going to miss out on the rapture of Jesus Christ. Why in the world would they be grieved if they were grieved that their beloved uh, fellow Christians were missing out on tribulation? No, they're grieved that they're missing out on Christ. It fulfills the promise to the church um, that they would escape a global period of trial. And of course, this is referring to Revelation 3, Revelation 3.20. I think this is one of the most important texts, actually. I should put it up there in the other one, but 3, uh, 3.10. It's not 3.20. Sorry, 3.10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. That's embarrassing. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, notice what he's saying there in 3.20 of Revelation 3.20. It's an hour of trial coming on the whole earth. That is a different kind of trial than the world has experienced yet. We've seen pockets of trial upon the church, but we've never seen a global trial. And the Lord Jesus Christ is promising the church at Philadelphia that he will keep them from this because of their patient endurance. And this, of course, brings up another good one. Um, next slide. 
It explains the noticeable, and I do mean noticeable, absence of the church in Revelation 6 all the way through 19. I mean, John's not ashamed or shy of saying the word church. He said it in Revelation 2 and 3, and then he starts up talking about the church again in Revelation 19. Where is the church in this time during the Great Tribulation? Well, they are with Christ in the rapture. And next one. And this is not a Johnny-come-lately doctrine either. This was very helpful to me to read this in our pastor's book, um, Preparing for Heaven. But he pointed out how the church father Irenaeus believed in the rapture. So this is not just some convenient American doctrine either. It seems like the church has always held fast to this. Now, sorry about all that. That is the rapture. That's why I believe in the rapture. Before we we even go into the rest of 2 Thessalonians 2, I wanted to kind of cement that. Um, Next slide. Man, I am just flying through these slides. I'll send you a picture later. All right. Uh, Fuel faith with truth. When you are shaken, when you are shaken by doubts, about what the world looks like and how maybe is this the end? It seems like the apocalypse is happening now because, you know, there's vaccines everywhere. (laughs) You need to fuel your faith with truth. Paul's basic answer to them is found in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. This is basically all that Paul is saying here in 2 Thessalonians 2. Hold fast, hold firmly to the things to which you have been taught, to uh, the apostles' teaching, to the New Testament, to the Word of God. You actually fuel your faith and strengthen your faith through holding fast. And, And Paul kind of explains this in in a way that I think is very interesting. Maybe you won't. Uh, Paul walks through this sequence that you should watch for uh, through which you can determine that the day of the Lord has come. And notice the sequence. Uh, Number one, you can jump to the next slide. Um, Oh, good. I didn't even... No, no, that's good. That's good. That's fine. There you go. There's the sequence. Number one, you know you're in the day of the Lord if the rebellion comes. He talks about that. Of course, in verse 3, unless the rebellion comes first. The day of the Lord is, of course, a time period encompassing over a thousand years, all the way from the rapture, all the way to the great right throne. That's over a thousand year period. The day of the Lord is the time when Christ will, of course, save his people who anxiously wait for him, and a time where he will repay evil and sin in the world. But you'll know it's the day of the Lord when this rebellion comes. What's going on there? There's many views. This word can mean defection, departure, um, whatever it is, it is unmistakable because you notice in verse 3, it is the rebellion. It is not a rebellion. It is the rebellion. There's lots of rebellions against Christ and his kingdom. But when this one comes, you'll say, oh yeah, that's the rebellion, right? There's lots of football games throughout the year. But when the football game comes, you're like, uh, none of those counted. This is the Super Bowl, right? This is the rebellion. This is unmistakable. Um, obviously, some people are wondering what this could be, and I think the best answer to this would be what Jesus talks about in Matthew 24 when he talks about the abomination of desolation in the temple. This, of course, comes in the three-and-a-half period of the tribulation period. This is when Antichrist really shows his true colors and turns against Israel itself. 
This is the rebellion. And you'll know, by the way, this is where I get really clever, you'll know, by the way, that it is the rebellion because of what comes with it. The man of lawlessness is also revealed. Right? These two events are closely sequenced in, in the syntax here of this statement. They, they go together. You know it's the rebellion because also the man of lawlessness is, is being revealed. Look at who this man will be. Look at his character in verse 4. He opposes himself and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. And he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. He wants no other God but him. And the nature of his power, we see in verse 9, is by the activity of Satan. So he is different from Satan himself, yet he seems to be a historical future individual. And you notice the people of his power in verse 10 and 11 are those who are under a deception. All wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends on them a strong delusion. This man of lawlessness is coming. But just a really a real quick thought there. Verse 8, notice how quickly the Lord makes work of this man of lawlessness. He comes and he destroys and defeats him with what? With a sword? With an army? No, with his mouth. With the breath of his mouth. Jesus is incredibly powerful and he kills, takes out the man of lawlessness with nothing but a breath and nothing but the appearance of his coming. This is incredible, the scene that it will be in Revelation 19. Now, maybe some of you are saying, hey, what about the rapture? Why, why, would, Paul, why would Paul give these two events, the rebellion and the man of lawlessness, and not just say, you guys, you know it's not the day of the Lord because the rapture hasn't come yet. I mean, that seems like a very simple answer to me. You guys, it's not the, it's not the day of the Lord. The rapture hasn't come yet. Why doesn't Paul talk about these things? Instead, he talks about uh, the rebellion and the man of lawlessness. Well, I mean, we may see a reference, by the way, to the rapture in verse 3. You could translate rebellion as the departure, but that's a little bit awkward, I think. But I say we also might just see in this passage a reference to the rapture itself. Notice. Uh, let's see the sequence here. The rebellion comes, and also the man of lawlessness comes, but then also there's this other event that tells you that the man of lawlessness is actually coming, and that is this restrainer in verse 6 and 7 being removed. Are you following with me? I'm sorry, I'm trying to move really fast. Maybe this is confusing, but that's okay. Uh, The restrainer is being removed. This is kind of interesting what's going on here. Verse 6 and 7, know what is restraining him, that's the man of lawlessness, so that he may be revealed in his time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Uh, This is appearing to be something that Paul has already talked to the Thessalonians about. And whatever or whoever this is, is apparently powerful enough to restrain the man of lawlessness who is empowered by Satan. So who could this be? And it or he is spoken of as someone or something that appears to be in the midst or in the world, keeping the man of lawlessness from power. 
And there's also one more little strange little thing here. Notice how he describes it in verse 6. You know what is restraining him. That seems like an inanimate object, right? But then in verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now is restraining him. So we've got an inanimate object, and then we've got some sort of person. So which one is it? Is it a thing, or is it a him? You know the New Testament had this little trick? for telling you that the Holy Spirit was in person and emphasizing that the Holy, pers- the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit, the word spirit is a, what we call a neuter noun. Normally we'd refer to the Holy Spirit as an it, grammatically, but the New Testament authors always went out of their way to refer to the Holy Spirit as a he, to emphasize his personhood. Could it be that we have here a veiled reference to the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is restraining him. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. I'm convinced that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit who is specially present in the church. And when the church is removed, the Holy Spirit is removed in the world. What is the church called to be in the world? We're called to be salt and we're called to be light. And when the church is removed, salt is removed. We're not the flavor of the world. We're the preservatives of the world. That's what salt was primarily in ancient times. Seems to me like Paul is actually kind of reversing the sequence here, right? When the restrainer is removed, the man of lawlessness will appear. And when the man of lawlessness appears, the rebellion comes. Just a thought for your viewing pleasure. Maybe he is talking about the rapture here. But let's move on. Do not be shaken. Do not be deceived. Feed your faith with truth. Notice what he says in verse 13 of chapter 2. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God, notice this, has chosen you as the firstfruits to be saved. And then notice how through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work. Or to say, move to the next slide. Fuel your faith with truth. Fuel your faith with truth. And now Tate stole my thunder. <laughs> Lastly, last little point, last little point, last little apl- application to have faithful expectation in the Lord's coming is work for God's glory. Work for God's glory. What was going on in the Thessalonian church? Well, we only get hints of it, but it appears that some people were confused about the sequence of events of the last days. But notice what happens. This is not something new. We, we, we know that they were already confused in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 13, because he challenged them to keep working hard, right? 
to live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and not dependent on anyone. This was already a problem, but this con- increased confusion actually led some people to idleness. You, you see idleness in verse 6 all the way down through 15. That's a lot of verses in a tiny letter for one little thing called idleness, isn't it? That's a, that's a lot of time that Paul spends on idleness. And, and I think this is what's happening here. You know what? You can be confused about theology, and your sin will take advantage of that confusion and use that confusion to continue in sin. They were confused about eschatology, and some people in the church were saying, well, Jesus is coming back, apparently. I don't need to work anymore. I can kind of depend on our emergency church fund to get through this period of time. Your sin will take advantage of your confusion, and you must work hard to avoid that confusion, but also you must always strive in every moment of your life to work for God's glory. Notice Paul's firm and serious words that he begins this uh, admonition with. Verse 6, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very serious thing that he's about to charge. Is he going to talk about sexual immorality? No, he's going to talk about laziness. He's going to talk about idleness. He's going to talk about spending too many, time, too many hours playing video games in your life. That's what he's talking about here, right? That's what idleness is. It's not working. It's not taking your day and organizing it. Not so that you have no entertainment, but so you can maximize your day for God's glory. That's what he's talking about here. Don't be idle. Work hard because Christ is coming. Work hard for Christ's glory. Why Why work hard? Why work hard? Here, another slide here really quick. This will really kill your fingers if you even dare try to take notes. I would suggest to you that you take one. You take one and try to apply it. Why work hard? Number one, you don't know when Christ is returning. Number two, uh, you do know that when Christ is returning, he is caring a lot about his glory in you. Right? We just talked about that in chapter one. He is coming to be glorified in his saints. He cares about it. Number three, laziness here is clearly rebuked. You should hate laziness and idleness because how Paul even begins to talk about it. We command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Clearly rebuked. Number four, why would you want to be a burden to others in a burdened church? You, you want to, number five, you, you can't give to others when you're constantly taking from others. You want to come to a point in your own life, right, where you are able to give to others in need instead of always be receiving from others in need. Number, next one, idleness brings a reproach. We see this in First Thessalonians, obviously, but, but we also see it. We also see it in verse 12 there. You should live quietly. You shouldn't be living in such a way that other people are talking about you and whispering about these Christians and how inconsistent they are. It brings a bad name to the name of Jesus. Next, idleness is clearly serious. If you were reading, you'd notice there in verse 13 all the way through 15 that this is a church discipline issue if you're lazy. But notice it is not... It is, it is not It is not certain that you are an unbeliever, but you are an erring brother. Verse 15, regard him not as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This is a serious issue. But one more thought for you. Idleness is a serious waste. 
Idleness is a serious waste. You remember that prayer that I talked you through at the very beginning and took so long explaining? God works through your work to bring about His glory. God works through your life right now to bring about His glory. He wants to work in. He wants to fulfill every resolve for good. And notice, every work of faith by His power. It's a serious waste of what God wants to do in you in this time and in your life right now to be idle. God has big plans for His glory in your small little life. Let that fire the energy of your life to honor him. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for blessing us with your word. And we pray that we would be sober under the seriousness, the seriousness of of fueling our faith with your truth and praying forward and earnestly seeking out your coming and working hard for your glory in that day. We pray that we would be faithful in these things. In your name, amen.